Welcome to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. I'm Ray Suarez. I'm a journalist, an author, and importantly for this story, a cancer survivor. Well, a cancer survivor so far. In this episode, I'll tell you about the rough and life-changing road I was on, feeling worse and worse as my career also unraveled. It took a while to sink in. I was a sick man, but I needed to get some help to figure out just how sick. Episode 1. Finding out or no news is bad news. I probably don't know you. Yeah, it's audio, distributed widely and all that, but you probably don't know me. I'm Ray Suarez, and this is The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. If you ask people who do know me what I'm like, they might say, easygoing, no hand-wringing, no hair-trigger temper, and no panic. People who know me even better, especially the people I've worked with, might say something like durable, sturdy, resilient. Not graceful, not athletic, but definitely not fragile. And that's who I thought I was, too. No sick days. Over the years, lots of 12-hour workdays and seven-day weeks. The news business sometimes asks for a lot in those ways. But then, a few years ago, I quite gradually started to feel not great. A lot of the time. I'd end a demanding day totally and uncharacteristically thrashed. And then, once exhausted, I'd lay awake much of the night. Then I'd drag myself out of bed the next morning, drink a bucket of coffee, and head out the door to do it all again. I had gone through some career reverses, the first stretch of unemployment in more than 31 years of steady work, and when work dried up, financial problems crept up. I figured the exhausted guy who couldn't fall asleep was overstressed, starting to feel the heat of approaching crisis, and maybe a little, or maybe more than a little, angry. I coped, I accommodated, I took over-the-counter sleep drugs, bulldozed my way through projects, went to job interviews. When a job in Boston unraveled, after I had already extended the lease for people renting my house for another year, I really didn't have any place to go. I ended up loading up two cars with booze, books, cats, electronics, and with me behind one wheel and my wife behind the other, drove the 300 miles to an accidental, temporary home in Philadelphia. But now, I was feeling even more lousy. But moving provides another reason to make excuses. After all, you've got the extensive physical demands of packing up, humping boxes, consolidating, getting ready for the moving van, and then, on the other end, doing it all over again in reverse, building bookshelves, cleaning, then filling closets, moving furniture until everything's where it needs to be in a new room. Now, for the first time in my life, I would make it halfway up a flight of stairs and have to stop, put the box down, catch my breath, breathe deeply, trying to slow down my heart, then get moving again. I told my wife, I'm going to the doctor, right away. Finally, I had to concede. It wasn't the stress, 
It wasn't the anger. It wasn't the job search. Something was really wrong with me. After a week in Philadelphia, I met my new internist. Young guy, dry humor, matter-of-fact manner, but thorough. And careful, and persistent. He listened to my heart and lungs. He looked in my mouth, my nose, my ears. And a nurse came by and took three tubes of blood. It would take a day to look at that, they said. He'd call and let me know what he found. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. The next evening, the doctor called and got my wife. He asked, Is your husband laying down? I couldn't hear the doctor's urgent tone. I only heard her half of the conversation. No, he's upstairs moving furniture and boxes. You're kidding, the doctor said. First, make him stop doing that. Then, I want you to take him to the emergency room. He needs a blood transfusion, like right away. Briskly, carefully concealing her rising concern, my wife told me we needed to go to the hospital. I was probably bleeding internally. I had never had a blood transfusion before. I mean, why would I? Minutes later, Friday night emergency room, my black and Puerto Rican North Philly neighbors crowded in tight, pre-pandemic, quiet conversations. People holding dish towels to head wounds, an old lady in a semi-faint, fanned by a worried granddaughter. Triage nurses behind lucite barriers, calling out patients' names. As a reporter, I covered the 90s crisis in the blood supply and watched as new protocols were put into place to make sure of two things. That dangerous blood didn't move into the supply and that no recipient could get the wrong blood. Even though I was now a patient instead of an observer, I was fascinated by it all. The checking, the rechecking, what's your name, what's your date of birth, typing and retyping my blood, and then doing the same with the donor blood, then observing me closely after each transfusion. Safe, backstopped, and as a result, long. From the time I walked into the emergency room until the time I walked out with two bags of a stranger's blood coursing through my veins, 12 hours, from 6.30 on a Friday night until 6.30 Saturday morning. My dangerous anemia would also be addressed by infusions of bags of iron. They had to figure out why I was bleeding and make it stop, or else we'd just be endlessly chasing our tails. An endoscopy would look down my throat, past my esophagus, and into my stomach. A colonoscopy would approach from, well, the other end, checking for problems in my rectum and colon. Or, as I told my wife, 
one endoscope and the other endoscope. During the appointment, just before the procedure, I asked the gastroenterologist to give me a list of the things it could be, the things that had to be ruled in or out. Well, there's not really a list, she answers. Just two things, really. A bleeding ulcer or cancer. It was the first time I ever wished I had a bleeding ulcer. By the next afternoon, tissues had been recovered and sent to a pathologist, but the tests were pretty clear. I had cancer. The lab report we were waiting for was just a formality. I had cancer. Three words change a lot. They set the stage for everything you think about when you find out your body is trying to kill you. Thanks for listening to The Things I Thought About When My Body Was Trying to Kill Me. Of course, we're still right at the beginning. There's a lot that has to happen physically and emotionally. These aren't things I would have chosen to happen. They're just the things that did happen, as they do to hundreds of thousands of Americans every year. Maybe even you, or someone you care about. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and pass it on to others facing the same challenges. Somebody it might help, not only to find out how it goes, but maybe to compare notes or listen for insights that can comfort or reassure. In the next episode, what's the worst that can happen? I answer my own question. This is the worst that can happen, or so it feels at the time. A sympathetic doc says those three momentous words. You have cancer. Just 13 letters, just a second to say, and transformative. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider writing a review or sharing with a friend. This is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Thanks go to producer and audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. Learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.